Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Rebound, Claxton. Chance for the Nets. They can go two for one if they want to and then play straight up deep. Here's Irving. Trying to shake Clay. Irving kicks. O'Neal. Got it to go. Royce O'Neal puts the Nets in front. What is up, Nets world? That was the call on the Royce O'Neal dagger three last night and a 120-116 comeback win for the Brooklyn Nets over the Golden State Warriors. I'm Eric Slater here on the Believe in Nets podcast, and we're going to be recapping the Brooklyn Nets' win in the Bay Area last night. Honestly, one of the best wins of the season for the Brooklyn Nets for so many different reasons, and the you know number one of which, Kevin Durant being out, getting down by double digits, nearly 20 points, and being able to have the resilience to come back and really getting contributions across the board in that process. Just an unbelievable, resilient win, and a lot of different areas that went into that that I'm really excited to break down. The biggest of which is obviously Kyrie Irving having among the best stretches of his career as a Brooklyn net 38 points, nine rebounds, seven assists, 12 of 22 from the field, five to seven from three, only one turnover in this win. And, you know, this is among the best two-way all-around performances I've seen from Kyrie Irving as a Brooklyn net. And it's the second straight game that I'm saying that I said the same thing in the win over Utah Friday when he went off for 48 and was honestly doing everything. And then he followed it up by doing it again against one of the better teams in the league and a team in Golden State that was 17 and five at home, just killing it at Chase Center up to this point. He went in there and was the best player on the floor by Far and away, it wasn't even close. He dominated this game from start to finish. And this is one of the best stretches, not only of Kyrie's Nets tenure, of his entire career right now, since that fourth quarter, when he really came alive against Phoenix and nearly brought the Nets back from 24 down. Over Kyrie Irving's last three games, 38.7 points, 8.3 rebounds, 7.3 assists, 52.7% from the field, 50% from three. It, it was just, it's unbelievable the things that he's done in these games. And it's really just an amazing thing to see because obviously he struggled early with Kevin Durant out in his first two appearances. He missed the game against San Antonio. And then he really was sleepwalking through the first three quarters of that loss to Phoenix. And I did a recap pod after that and broke that down and said, you know, Kyrie, this is when the Nets need him most. And he hasn't stepped up as the number one option. Obviously, he had his struggles in Boston. He's had his struggles in Brooklyn as the lone star up to this point. And the Nets really needed him in this time as a full-time player, unlike last season, to step up and prevent another downward spiral that just totally sidetracks the entire season. And they lost four straight. The narratives, the comparisons, all of it to last year was coming in hot. Coming from all directions, the Sharks were circling. Kyrie Irving tried to shut it down after the Boston or the OKC game, I think it was, said this isn't last year. But then the Nets had dropped two disappointing losses against the league-worst San Antonio Spurs and a shorthanded Suns team. But then he backs it up, and he finally came to play, and he woke up, and he's doing it at a level that we honestly haven't seen him at in his Nets tenure from a two-way basketball standpoint. We've seen Kyrie Irving be unbelievable as a scorer, do things, score 60 points, do you know, turn in crazy performances. But these performances, 
He's got 48. He's got 38 yesterday. And he also has got seven assists, nine assists, 11 rebounds, nine rebounds. He's putting up performance. And also while playing defense against some good offensive players, these are all around performances. And obviously Kyrie's not known for being a facilitator. He's not known for being a defender. He's not known for being a rebounder, but he's doing it all and just willing the team to victory over these last couple of games. And if you include that fourth quarter against Phoenix, I mean, just talking about what happened in this game offensively, Kyrie's shot making is just ridiculous. Obviously, his handle is otherworldly. There was one play in the first half where Kyrie was dribbling through like eight guys. He almost lost it. It bounced to his right a little bit. He did a little control dribble with his left hand and kind of knifed through four defenders. It was unbelievable. Dish to TJ Warren. TJ missed the layup. But it just plays like that where he's doing things that nobody else can really do. And then down the stretch, the Nets got back from 10. They got some contra- got down by 10 in the fourth quarter with about five minutes left. They got a great run from Nick Claxton that I'm going to break down later to bring them back into the game. But then Kyrie takes over. You know, he hits some pull-up jumpers. He hits a three. He gets an unbelievable and one pull-up to go over Clay Thompson. And then the last play of the game, like you just heard on the call at the top of the show, he dribbles in. He beats Clay Thompson to the right side. Draymond Green comes over to help. He trusts Royce O'Neal to hit the shot as a wide-open three-point shot. He gives it to him, and Royce drains it. And it's just an unbelievable way to cap off a victory. And he had a soundbite talking about his trust for Royce O'Neal in that spot that I thought was really telling and a good sense of where his mind's at. So I wanted to play that for you right now. And for me to uh, draw on the defense, draw on 2-3, for them to lose their man and Royce be wide open, I feel like that was the best shot for our team. So I gave up the ball and trusted him to make it, and luckily it went in. So uh, we've had a few games like that over the course of the season uh, where the ball deserves to be in someone else's hands and they have an open look and we got to live by it. So uh, it felt good. It's a great team win. And so you see there, Kyrie saying he's got the trust in his teammates. Guys deserve to have their ball, the ball in their hands in certain spots when they're open, and we got to live by it. And he could have forced a shot up over Klay Thompson and over Draymond Green, but he didn't. He pivoted. He made the right read. He saw Royce O'Neal wide open, and he said, you know what? If we're going to be one of the better teams in the league, guys like Royce O'Neal, guys like Joe Harris, guys like Seth Curry, Yuta Watanabe, whoever, they're going to have to hit these shots. And Royce O'Neal hit it. And Royce O'Neal's done it this season in those spots. And I'm going to you know, build upon that and kind of expand on that later in the episode. But just going back to what Kyrie said, you know, that really just ties into his decision-making. And his decision-making and his passing over these last couple games has been unbelievable because not only is he putting up 48 points, 38 points, 21 points in that fourth quarter against Phoenix. He's doing it while also making the correct plays. He's not forcing anything. He's not saying that I need to take over this game and I need to do this and I need to do that. He's making the right plays and that takeover of the game is just happening naturally throughout the flow, which is really amazing. And the passes that he's making, just the flow of the offense, getting other guys involved to have Kyrie score 48 against Utah, which was a little bit more of a Herculean effort offensively, just from a scoring perspective, then to score 38 in this one, but while also having teammates in rhythm and getting comfortable to the point where they're able to hit the big shots down the stretch because they've gotten the looks that they should be getting throughout the game. It's amazing. And Kyrie had another quote that I wrote an article about that I thought was just amazing. He talked about his number one label and what that means and KD being number one, then KD going out, him being number one, and all of that to him. And he had a really passionate message, he said, for the people at home, which is you and me, obviously. So I'm going to play that for you also right now. I mean, I told you guys that I was putting a lot of pressure on myself to 
you know, be the, the first option or the second option or be the main one. Um, and this is just a message for everybody at home, just like first option, second option, third option. It don't fucking matter to me. Um, it don't matter who has the ball in their hands, less, as long as they're being aggressive, it's the best shot for our team. Um, the objective of this team sport is to win basketball games, not identify one person to carry everybody every single night. Um, and some nights are gonna, it's gonna occur like that or seem like that, but for me, it's just the team attitude, team atmosphere, and um, you know, living with the results for us playing well together and collectively. So like Kyrie's saying, I mean, obviously we all know Katie's the number one when he's in, Kyrie's the number one when, he's, when Katie's out, but this is still a team effort. They need guys to step up and make these plays. Nobody's getting through a team like Golden State without other players stepping up around them. We saw that even down the stretch. This wasn't Kyrie Irving every play. This was Royce O'Neal hitting that shot. This was Seth Curry making two big plays. This was Joe Harris hitting a three. This was Nick Claxton bringing them back with five minutes left. It was an all-around team effort, and it was really just you know an amazing two-way effort on top of that by Kyrie Irving. His, his defense on Steph Curry was great. We saw multiple possessions where Kyrie was just clamping Steph Curry. He couldn't do anything. And I'm, I, you know, watching this, rewatching this game, the full third and fourth quarter earlier today, this was not Steph's most locked in game. You know, he wasn't really forcing the issue. He was taking some really bad shots. So it wasn't great, but Kyrie was playing defense on him and he was giving them no airspace and he was really doing a great job. So everything that I just talked about with Kyrie Irving, obviously, the scoring, the shot making, the handle. But on top of that, that's really setting all, setting this recent stretch apart from other times we've seen Kyrie go off during his Nets tenure is the passing, the decision making, the trust in his teammates, the rebounding, the defense. Kyrie Irving is doing it all. And that's something that he hasn't always done throughout his career. And really, that's why he's doing superstar. He's turning in superstar play right now when the Nets need it most with Kevin Durant's sideline. So unbelievable to see from Kyrie. And you hope he can you know, keep that going against another formidable opponent in Philadelphia on Wednesday. But moving on, the next guy who honestly played like a star in this one and has been has the look of a star in the making this season is Nick Claxton. 24 points and 15 rebounds in this win both career highs on 9 of 13 shooting. Nick Claxton is honestly approaching most improved defensive player of the year. Approaching might even be putting it too light. He's in the he's got to be one of the favorites for both of those awards because the things that he's doing for this Nets team that honestly is one of the better teams in the league right now is just unbelievable. He's it's the big 3 right now if we're talking about the big 3 for the Nets. It was supposed to be obviously KD, Kyrie, Ben Simmons. It's KD, Kyrie, Nick Claxton. That's the Brooklyn Nets big three right now, because the things that Nick Claxton is doing on both ends of the floor, the Nets could not survive without it. They really couldn't. Just talking about what he did in this game, his presence in all facets as a two-way player, as a defender, as an offensive threat in the pick and roll, even self-creating a little bit and on the glass, it was completely controlling this entire game. And it was really amazing to see. His defensive presence on the inside is completely changing everything that teams want to do. He blocked three shots in this one. That's his 12th straight game with three or more blocks. That's the longest streak in franchise history. He's leading the league at 2.7 blocks per game. And he's also on top of that, he has that that skill set as a rim protector that's really blossomed this year on top of also being one of the top perimeter defending bigs in the league right alongside guys like Bam at a So his defensive presence 
is really just taking opposing offenses and wreaking havoc and not letting them get into any of their sets comfortably. And whenever they think they might have a look at the rim, Nick Claxton is there lurking or rotating from the weak side or just guarding down in the post or overwhelming guys like Steph Curry on the perimeter. He's doing things that really only elite players in this league do. And there was a sequence I touched on earlier with five minutes left in this game. The Nets got down by 10. They had a few really rough sequences. And then Nick Claxton comes in. He gets a rebound. He dribbles up the floor. Nobody's helping him out. So he looks towards the basket and he says, all right, I'm going to take it myself. He drives in. He euros. He hits Draymond Green, who flops, and he lays it in. They call it an offensive foul initially. Jock Vaughn is a good challenge, and it's overturned, and it's an and one. He sinks the free throw. So now it's a seven-point deficit. Then the Nets get a stop. Kyrie Irving gets the outlet. Claxton runs the floor. Kyrie, you know, dishes a little pocket pass to him on the left side of the lane. It's behind him. He reaches back and down, grabs it, brings it back, lays it in with the left hand. Nets lead. Nets deficit's down to five. Now on the other end, the Warriors try to run a double drag screen. They try to get Claxton switched on to Steph. I don't know why they're going for that, but they do. He absolutely clamps him. Steph makes his way down to the left corner, throws up a terrible shot, hits the top of the backboard, and it's a 24-second violation. Just like that, you know, the Nets are down by five points. And now before you know it, it's a tie game. And it's just sequences like that with Nick Claxton's two-way play that's really setting him apart from other big men in the Eastern Conference and in the league because he's just... He's in, he's has stretches where the Nets just absolutely would not be able to survive with him off the floor. And that's evident in his on-off numbers. With Claxton on this season, the Nets are a plus seven net rating. With him off, they're negative 1.7. So it, it's it's just night and day with what he's doing on the floor. There's nobody on this team, including Ben Simmons, that can do the things that he does. And when we're talking about his upside, I mean, his defensive presence is just solidified right now. He's one of the best defenders in the league. Like I said, with that combination of being an elite rim protector and being an elite perimeter defender at six foot 11 with his length, it's just, it's insane. But his offensive development is really raising his ceiling each game. He's leading the league in field goal percentage this year, 73.4%. And we're seeing him do things that he hadn't done in prior seasons. We always knew it was there. I covered Clax a little bit in the G League two or three seasons ago. And I saw some, he's only played in eight G League games, but I saw him take the ball coast to coast and go Euro. I saw him do these things at Georgia. I talked to his mom at the draft and she's always harped that his dad made him a guard when he was younger. And he always had him practice his point guard skills. And am I going to say at the NBA level that Nick Claxton can handle the ball legitimately? No, but when he gets the ball, there was one play in this game where he ran a little, you know, pass and then a dribble handoff near the right corner to Seth Curry. Seth Curry fires in a pocket pass to him on the short roll. And he comes in, he gives a little shoulder head fake to the left. He step throughs to the right and lays it in. And it's just like plays like that where he's self-creating. The play I talked about with Draymond Green, those things, he's able to add a little bit of that to his game. It was a little bit of just not handling the ball or doing anything crazy. But when you get the ball at an advantage in a short roll in transition, he has the dexterity to handle the coordination and the finishing ability to be able to convert on those touches. And that's really amazing. And then just on the putbacks, on the dump-ins, late in the shot clock into the post, his lefty hook has just been money this year. It seems like it's going in every single time he shoots it. And his offensive development on top of that, you know, really versatile defensive skill set, it, it has him looking like a potential all-star in the making. And if you would have said that about Claxton a couple of years ago, some people would have thought you were crazy, but 
he his impact is undeniable at this point, and it was in this one. And this is a game, despite Kyrie Irving's otherworldly performance, the Nets would have had no shot in this game without Nick Claxton performing at an insanely high level. And then the one area of weakness of Claxton's game this season has obviously come at the free throw line, which was a big storyline in this game because Steve Kerr, being the savvy coach that he is, tried to take advantage of it. He went hack a Clax in the second quarter, in the third quarter, in the fourth quarter. Claxton shot 16 free throws in this one. That's a career high. He made six of them. That's also a career high. Clax is shooting a career low 46.3% from the free throw line this season. He did step up late in the game and he hit three in a row, but then also missed a pair when they went hack a clack. So, you know, it's a problem. And then you look at the other Nets big man and Ben Simmons, who's also shooting a career low 43.4% this season. It's an issue. I mean, you got two guys centers here are 46 point, 46% or below. That's going to be an issue. And I've said it multiple times and I'll continue to say it that when you get into a playoff game, you're not going to be able, it's going to be very tough to have one of these guys to have Claxton or Simmons on the floor, let alone both. That's going to be very difficult. And, you know, the Nets, I don't think they're going to get bullied and play guys, want to let guys get played off the floor, especially a guy like Nick Claxton, who's one of their best players right now. And Jack Vaughn said that after the game, that we're going to stick with him and we're not going to waver in those moments. But it's an undeniable issue, an undeniable lurking problem as we head towards the postseason. And I said it last episode, it's one of the top reasons that the Nets are going to have to add another piece to the front court at the trade deadline. Because if teams do in a playoff setting, go hack a Clax, go hack a Simmons, and they can't convert on those free throws, you have to be able to counter. You have to be able to add a different look. And in order to do that, they're going to have to acquire a front court piece that can shoot free throws and in an ideal world, shoot a little bit from the outside. And not only is that going to help with the free throws, it's also going to unlock some things in the half court offense just when teams are playing normal. So that's easier said than done to find high level stretch options. But the bottom line, as we approach the trade deadline, we're three weeks away, the Nets need to be able to field lineups that don't have that liability from a shooting perspective, whether it's three-point shooting or free-throw shooting, you need to be able to have you know, not have that liability on the floor at all times while being able to at least have close to adequate size and rebounding in the front court. So that just underscores the need for another piece. And you know, Adrian Wojnarowski reported it a week and a half or two weeks ago. He said the Nets are going to be active ahead of the deadline. They're looking to upgrade, particularly in the front court. So obviously, Sean Marks has his eye on upgrades there. So Amazing effort by Nick Claxton. Obviously, the hack of Claxton free throw shooting is something that we have to continue to monitor, but maybe he can improve there. We'll see. But moving on to contributions from the role players, I touched on obviously everything that some of these guys did down the stretch, especially in the final two or three minutes. Royce O'Neal, 16 points, six rebounds, two blocks, six of 10 from the field, four of seven from three. Obviously, Royce came up with the biggest shot of the game with 30 seconds remaining. You know, no ice cold, no waiver, no hesitation from Kyrie Irving or him in that spot. You heard the quote earlier from Kyrie Irving about his trust in Royce O'Neal. Nick Claxton also had an interesting quote. It's a quick one. That big shot from Royce. We're used to that now at this point, right? Yeah, he um he got big balls. He he um he definitely steps up in the crunch time. So, you know, Clax gave that after the game and Megan Triplett, who I know does a great job as the yes sideline reporter, looked like she was trying to keep a straight face and stay professional and credit to her. She did. But Clax is, you know, sometimes you forget that these guys are kids. I mean, I'm 24 years old. Clax is only 23. I mean, 
it's these guys are kids and it comes out in a quote like that. So that's just really hilarious. But I mean, when you look at the numbers, when it comes to Royce and crunch time, Clax isn't that off with this take in games with in games within two points in the final two minutes this season, Royce is four of four from the field and two of two from three. So he's done it in big spots. We obviously saw in the Nets' first win of the season against Toronto, they're up by one with 16 seconds left. They desperately need a basket. Kyrie Irving similarly kicks to Royce O'Neal on the left wing, and he drilled a dagger three. So he's done it, and it was nice to see Royce just break out of some extended struggles in these last two wins. He's 7 of 15 from three in the last two games. He was 7 of 27 in his last five appearances before that. So I said the same thing on my last episode. It's tough with Royce because he's so streaky, but he can provide the shooting if he's on, but you never know when that's going to be. So it's difficult as you move towards in the latter stages of the season to have a guy who can either be four of seven, five of seven, or one of seven, O oh of seven. You know, it's difficult. There's not a lot of that middle ground all the time. So, you know, Royce O'Neal is hitting the big shots, though. You got to tip your cap to him and you got to just keep riding with him because the Nets need that size and three-point shooting on the wing. And he's doing it when the Nets need him to this season. Joe Harris, 14 points, four rebounds, three assists, one steal, five of eight from three, four of seven, five of eight from the field, four of seven from three. And Joe's really moving out of some extended struggles, similar to Royce O'Neal. And Joe's last three games, he's 11 of 17 from three. He was seven of 23 over his last seven appearances prior to that at, while returning from a knee, knee ailment. So it's nice to see Je Joe get going. Like I said last time, they're getting him involved earlier in these games. He's getting some looks. They're actually running some sets for him, whether it's elevator doors, whether it's just trying to look for him in the transition game, whether it's just putting him in the corner and working some same side actions to try to get the defense to help off of him. And Joe's hitting those shots. He hit a huge three that I'm going to talk about with Seth Curry um, in the final. I think it was there was like a minute 40 or two minutes left. He hit a three to tie the game off a beautiful skip pass. So he's hitting the shots in the big moments and the Nets are getting these contributions from their wings like Joe Harris, like Royce O'Neal. So that's really what you need to see because this team needs that shooting from those guys without giving up the size and having to lean into these multi-guard lineups like they did last season. And that's honestly why they got demolished by Boston or just swept in that series because they, were, they weren't able to field these wings because Joe was out and didn't have Royce. So now they have these guys and they're hitting big shots. Seth Curry, 12 points, four assists, five of seven from the field, one of three from three. Seth was really bad early in this one. He's been struggling throughout this Durantless stretch. He had, you know, we saw his minutes cut in December. Then he came back and had a nice stretch of games where he, you know, popped off in that game against uh the game against Chicago, it was when everybody else struggled. He came up huge down the stretch in the win over Miami. So he can do it. But he struggled, the decision-making. He's made some really bad passes in the half court and particularly in transition. He made he had a really, really bad turnover against Phoenix. He had a couple. Then he had a really bad one against Utah late in the game where he missed Joe Harris, tried to force it to Kyrie Irving. It went the other way for a basket. He had a few of those in, the, in this one. But like he did in Miami and like he did at points throughout his career and kind of has a reputation for it, he came up big in crunch time. There was a stretch. There's a three-play sequence with about two minutes, 30 seconds left in the game where he drove and got a hook to go, You know, drove to the right side, got a running hook to go to cut the lead to three. Then on the other end, he plays great D on his brother to force a miss. Then he comes back and recognizes that Draymond Green is overhelping off Harris on the weak side. He drives right. He throws a skip pass, and Harris drains the three. And shout out to Utah Watanabe, who set a nice little exit screen on that play 
But that's what I'm talking about earlier with Kyrie Irving's quote about it's not number one, number two, number three. This is a team game because in these moments, those are that's three plays in the final two minutes that they got contributions from Seth Curry, you know, Kyrie Irving letting him handle the ball and take over because he knows that he needed a little bit of a breather for those few possessions. Then Joe Harris knocking down the three off of that. Then Royce O'Neal hitting the shot in the last minute. It's just they need these other guys to step up and they did. So, you know, really nice to see Seth get going there. It's always difficult with him. You know, it's like I said, and like I continue to say, it's his defense versus his offense in terms of he's such a defensive liability alongside Kyrie Irving almost all the time that you have to just hope that his offense outweighs his defense. And it's tough to, you know, always lean on that. But it's also tough because Seth Curry does have a track record of being a big time performer and a clutch shot maker in these big moments. So, it's just a balancing act with him. And he's, I think he's a prime candidate, honestly, to get moved at the deadline just because of his contract and his mid-sized number and also being an expiring salary. So we'll see where that goes. But for the time being, he's kind of essential with Kevin Durant out because the Nets just don't have the shot making or the playmaking if he's not on the floor. Moving on to Ben Simmons, who obviously has been struggling in a big way since KD went down. You know, he gets a lot of hate because of obviously he's not performing up to standards. He's not scoring a lot in this one, had only seven points on three of six shooting from the field, had 11 assists, however, and three rebounds, one steal, one block. And I do think that Ben made a significant impact in the second half, particularly in this one, despite his low scoring total. He really put on, he turned it on in terms of defense, in terms of pushing the ball in transition. And when you look at that third quarter, led by Nick Claxton and Ben Simmons, the Warriors only scored 18 points in the third quarter on six of 24 shooting from the field and two of eight from three. So the Nets absolutely clamped them and allowed the Nets to get back in the game early in that third quarter they gave it back a little bit towards the end but Ben Simmons played some good ball in that we saw a few sequences defensively where they you know the Warriors ran a pick and roll they gave it to Draymond Green Ben Simmons comes over rejects it then he gets it back and goes down finds Nick Claxton for a little underhand alley-oop so a play like that we saw Jonathan Kaminga get the ball in the post and Ben absolutely stonewalls him and Kaminga ends up just committing an ugly offensive foul. So, you know, it, he has those moments defensively that can turn into offense. And then in transition, he did a really good job finding three-point shooters, had one drop-off to Joe Harris, had another drop-off to Kyrie Irving, a play we see him make regularly, found Joe Harris for another nice corner three. So, you know, He's not performing up to standards in terms of scoring and self-creation, but he still is doing things to help the team win. It's a little frustrating because then you look at a play I posted on Twitter, like him getting the ball in the post on, I think Kaminga or Wiggins is covering him. He does a nice spin to his left side because he feels Kaminga shading. He has the open layup, but he doesn't take it. And he pivots back out and takes a righty fadeaway hook and he nearly airballs it. So that's just an example of what I talked about on my last episode of the feel, the touch, the instincts when he's trying to create his own shot. It's just not there. He looks extremely uncomfortable and it's limiting what he can do for this team because you know, sometimes the floor is a little bit clogged. If you're not getting out in transition, if you're not doing these things, especially when a Nick Claxton's on the floor alongside you, it makes it tough offensively. So you really need him to just be better in that area. But I will say in this one, I thought he made a good impact and turned in good minutes in the third quarter and early in the fourth, just with his effort level. But what I said from that lack of self-creation, it's evident because Ben Simmons didn't play the final eight or nine minutes of this game. He sat on the bench. And that might've been partly because 
Jock Vaughn didn't want Steve Kerr to go to a hack of Simmons like he was with a hack of Claxton. Like I said, it's going to be very tough to have two of those guys out there. But when you're paying a guy $33 million and he's supposed to be this caliber of player, it's difficult to see him not in the game against a good opponent like this come crunch time. So I think an impactful performance from Ben Simmons, but a little bit of those issues that we're going to continue to see rearing their heads in terms of his fit with this team. Moving on through the rest of the bench, not much to go over. TJ Warren played only 11 minutes, Was came up limping on a couple of plays. I think Nick Claxton banged his knee a little bit, and then he fell into the stanchion and was limping off the floor. He came into this one with a knee contusion, so didn't get an update on that. We'll monitor for that, but looked like he's just a little banged up. And TJ's usage is you know, kind of been toned down a little bit as of late. He only had four points of this one. He was two of eight from the field, 0 of one from three, two rebounds, one assist. So not a great game from TJ Warren. We need him to be a little bit better if the Nets are going to try to survive this KD period, you know, and sustain a little bit of this offense going forward. He is a significant piece there. So hopefully the knee's okay. And we'll update you on that as we get it moving forward. Utah Watanabe played 10 minutes, scored two points, was one of four from the field, 0 of two from three, three rebounds, one assist. Another quiet game from Utah, but was in the game down the stretch come crunch time when the Nets went away from Ben Simmons. They wanted that extra spacing on the floor, and Utah Watanabe was the guy that Jock Vaughn trusted. And he played you know, pretty solid defense, and like I said, he set that exit screen for Joe Harris that led to a game-tying three in the final minutes, so... You know, nothing flashy from Utah. It's been a quiet stretch for him, but Jock Vaughn obviously trusts him enough to keep him in the game and in those big moments. And I think that that's significant moving forward. So we'll see if Utah can break out of this. It's going to be, I think, until Kevin Durant comes back, it's going to be a little bit difficult for him to produce offensively because he's just not a guy who creates on his own at all. Edmund Sumner, last guy, played 12 minutes, three points, 0 of 1 from the field, 3 of 4 from the free throw line. One rebound, no assists, one turnover. He was a minus 11. We saw Sumner come in late in the third quarter when the Nets played without Kate, without Kyrie or Ben Simmons on the floor. And this unit they had out there was just completely disjointed. None of these guys knew where to go. I think it was Sumner, Curry, Warren, Claxton, and maybe Joe Harris or Royce O'Neal, one of those two. But the unit was just terrible. And the, the lead, the Nets were up by four or five, and then Golden State closes the period up four because this crew just had no idea where they were going. And Edmund Sumner is just a difficult fit in some of these lineups because of his lack of a three-point shot. He really hasn't shot the ball well this season. And he's it's difficult in the half court because he's not a good mid-range shooter. He's not a good three-point shooter. His value really comes when he's going to the basket. So that's going to be pushing the ball in transition or just trying to work through a lot of defenders in the half court. So it's difficult. And he didn't really finish well at the rim in this one. So it's it's not an easy, you know, it's not an easy fit to have Edmund Sumner out there with a lot of these lineups, especially with KD out. So not a great game for Edmund Sumner, but maybe we'll see him in the rotation a little bit more if the Nets need a spark and somebody who can push the ball and create a little bit in different ways offensively. So that does it for this recap. This win brings the Nets to 29 and 17. I think it is. They're tied for third place in the Eastern Conference with 
Milwaukee and Cleveland, I, or tied with Milwaukee, a game ahead of Cleveland, a game back of Philadelphia, and then rolling into Wells Fargo Center in Philadelphia Wednesday. So that's going to be a good one, and they have a chance to make it back for second place in the standings. We'll see if they can pick up another big win over a formidable opponent if Kyrie Irving can continue this hot streak, if Nick Claxton can compete with a Joel Embiid if he's available. So excited to see how that plays out. I'll be down in the game in Philly. I'll have updates, news, analysis on all that. Follow me on Twitter at Eric Sater underscore if you want to see that. You can find all of my articles on clutchpoints.com. News, updates, analysis, trade rumors, injuries, everything. You can find it there. So that does it for this episode of Believe in Nets on the Believe Podcast Network, your one-stop shop for everything happening across the sports and entertainment world. Hopefully we get some good Nets play coming up and I'll talk to you guys soon. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.